I invite you in your Bible with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. We'll take our scripture reading from this passage of scripture. And we'll break in at verse number 19. And we'll read down through the end of the chapter. Hebrews chapter 7. Verse number 19, this is the word of God. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest, for those priests were made without an oath, But this with an oath, by him that said unto him, The Lord swear, and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests, Because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son, who is consecrated forevermore. Amen. And thus far the reading of God's inerrant word. May he write its truth on our hearts for his own namesake. This morning, I want to take as our text the last three verses of chapter 7, Hebrews 7, verses 26 through 28, and I want us to draw our attention to Jesus Christ as our great high priest. It's my aim this morning that we would all see him with greater confidence and with more sure hope as our great high priest sitting at the right hand of God. As you know, the writer of Hebrews has a lot to say about the priesthood of the Lord Jesus. And if you stop and think about it, the writer of Hebrews has a unique ministry in giving us this exposition of his priestly office. If you go to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's very little there about the fact that Jesus would be a priest. 
And in the writing of the Apostle Paul, those books that were certain that he wrote, those 13 letters that we know he wrote, he doesn't even use the word priest once in any of his writing. If you already have the category established, you can see things about Jesus being our high priest in those letters, but it's left to the writer of the Hebrews of this epistle to give us this wonderful truth about the Lord Jesus Christ being a mediator and being our great high priest. And as we consider him this morning as our high priest, we want to do so with a certain objective in mind. This isn't just systematic theology. It's not just content for some sort of textbook so we can round out our our knowledge of facts about our Savior. This is all calculated that we might draw nigh unto him, that we might come into closer fellowship with him, that we might go deeper in our communion with God. That's the reason why the writer of Hebrews has given us all of this exposition on the priesthood of Jesus. This entire section of Hebrews begins in chapter 4. And at the end of chapter 4, you have in verse number 16, after his introductory remarks about our great high priest who has passed into the heavens, he says in 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. So he's, he starts this all out by saying, Now before I even talk about this, here's, what I want, here's why I'm telling you this so that you will come to the throne of grace boldly, with freedom, with liberty, with confidence. And that's how he ends the entire section as well. In chapter 10 and verse number 19, he tells, he's summing up everything he said. And he says, having therefore, brethren, boldness, there's the same word, confidence to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And then he says in verse number 22, let us draw near, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And so this entire section about the priesthood of Jesus, of which the end of chapter 7 is the very heart of it, it's all calculated that we might have our confidence in Jesus Christ built up and strengthened so that we might draw near unto him. And that's what we all need this morning. No matter where we are in our walk with God, we need to draw nearer to the Lord Jesus. We've lived, unfortunately, and to our regret, with him at a distance from us well too often. Why is it that we shrink back from him rather than draw near to him? What we need is the Spirit of God to draw us to him by exalting him before us, exalting the sufficiency of his work, exalting the gloriousness of his person, and that is what draws us to him. That's how growth in the Christian life happens. It doesn't happen by self-exertion. It doesn't happen by mere self-discipline. 
Growth and progress in the Christian life happens when the Spirit of God exalts the Lord Jesus and gives us eyes to see him and so works in us to draw us unto him. And that's how we grow. That's what progress is. We're so, our, our tendency is to equate learning something new with growing. And we think that because we've learned some new fact that we have therefore advanced and that we've grown. But that is not necessarily the case. A person can have their minds full of orthodoxy and facts about the Lord Jesus and not know the Lord Jesus. It is an act of the Spirit of God to exalt him before us and to give us eyes to see him and to draw us to him. And really, sanctification happens the same way conversion happens, if you think about it. We're presented with truth about Jesus Christ, and the Spirit gives us eyes to see it and opens our hearts and draws us unto him. That's why we need to give our attention to the end of Hebrews chapter 7 and this passage regarding the glorious ministry and the perfections of Jesus Christ, our high priest. Every one of us needs to see the glory of Jesus Christ in this passage. If we're struggling with habitual sin, it is only um, victory is only going to come as we, as we are more confident in our Lord Jesus and in his promises when we're more confident in him and in his promises than we are confident in the lies that sin tells us. When we're discouraged or when we're anxious about some kind of strained relationship or some ongoing hardship or some unanswered prayer, we only know peace in our inner man as we take our minds off the circumstances and put them on to the settled truth that we know about God and about our Savior. If we feel ourselves drifting away, this is the anchor that we need to hold on to with a greater grip. When we're laboring under a guilty conscience, under that burden, this is the only this is the only truth that can lift the burden of sin off someone who's laden down. And we long for deeper communion with God and a closer walk with him. Then it's the sufficiency of this better hope by the which we draw nigh unto God. That was the first verse we read in verse number 19. This is the better hope by which we draw nigh to God. We need food for our souls this morning, recognizing that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceedeth out of the mouth of God. This is that true bread which falleth down from heaven, which the Father gives his Son. This must be our aim as we consider Christ our high priest this morning in these three precious, precious verses. So verses 26 through 28 of Hebrews chapter 7 is communicating to us that we need a certain kind of high priest. 
and that Jesus Christ is exactly fitted to our need. He's just exactly the high priest that we need. Look at how the author says it in verse number 26. The Holy Spirit wrote, For such an high priest became us. Now you're aware of how the authorized version uses the word become. When we read that, we think it's talking about the, about the incarnation. Jesus became a man. He took on flesh. This high priest became us. But that's not how the authorized version uses the word become. The authorized version will use the word become in a very different sense in, in things like this. He says, I want, the Paul says, walk as becometh the gospel of Christ. So walk in a way that is fitting, that is appropriate for someone who is making a profession of faith as becometh the gospel of Christ. Or remember when Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized and John the Baptist protested against this. And Jesus says, thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. It is needful that we do this. It is necessary. It is fitting. It is appropriate that we do this. Okay, that's the sense of this word became. It's not that he, it's true, of course, that he took on human flesh and became one of us. But the truth here is that this is the high priest that we need. For such a high priest was necessary for us. For such a high priest was fitted for us. That's what it's talking about. And so with that in mind, then the passage just falls open. That's what the passage is about. It's about the high priest that we need. And it's going to proceed to tell us then, here is the high priest that we need. And this is just how Jesus Christ meets that need. He's such a high priest that is necessary for us. And so this morning, I would like to preach to you on the high priest that we need. The high priest that we need. There are four qualities, four perfections that are revealed to us in these three verses. The first are these three terms in the middle of verse 26. He is holy, harmless, and undefiled. Let's group those three words together and say the first quality of the high priest that we need is that he be sinless. That he be sinless. But really not just sinless. It's even more than that. Sinless doesn't, isn't adequate to talk about what these three words are communicating. It's, it's deeper than that. It's fuller than that. Not just sinless, but perfectly sinless, um, impeccably sinless, absolutely pure to the greatest degree, impeccably sinless. These words, entire, the, these words cover the entire gamut of sinlessness. So let's think about them together. First, that word holy. He's holy. Now, we think we know what that word means. 
but if you dig a little bit, you realize that this is not the usual word holy that's translated in our New Testament. It's not the expected word. There is an expected word that's used over 200 times in the New Testament, holy. We know it means set apart, and it's used hundreds and hundreds of times in the Old Testament. And it's especially a word used for the priests. You know how Leviticus, which is all about the priests, is always talking about holiness. This word is not that word. It's a different word. It's not the usual word for holy. This word holy is only used three times in the New Testament. It's a very rare word. And so it has to be given to us with a specific intention in mind. The Holy Spirit does not waste words. He's not careless with his vocabulary. If he's going to use an out-of-the-ordinary word, which is unexpected, then it ought to make our ears perk up and wonder, why is he using this word? What, what does this word mean? And the best way to explain it is to look at a cross-reference in Acts chapter 2, where the word is used. So turn with me back to Acts chapter 2. This, of course, is the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter's sermon at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. You know how he preaches to the crowd about the Lord Jesus and especially the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In his sermon, he quotes several different psalms, most notably Psalm 16. And so you see there in verse number 25 of Acts chapter 2, He begins to quote the 16th Psalm, which is a prophecy of the resurrection of Christ. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption." Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. And he goes on to explain how that was a prophecy of the resurrection of Christ. Now in verse 27, this prophecy refers to the Messiah as God's holy one. And that's our word. That's the word used in Hebrews 7. This is a quotation from Psalm 16. The Psalm 16 word is a word for being loyal to God, for being fiercely devoted unto God. It's the word loving kindness. You've perhaps been taught before of that special Hebrew word that talks about God's tender mercies, his loving kindness. We read of it in Psalm 103 a couple times this morning. And it's usually translated mercy in our King James Version. It has to do with God's loyal love, his faithful love. It's that word just made into a noun. God's loyal one. God's faithful one. Now, why would the writer of Hebrews use that word and not the normal word? Why would he talk about how he's loyal, fiercely loyal, and faithful? Well, you know how that the Old Testament priests could, were holy but could lose their holiness by a variety of things. Their holiness was largely external to them. 
they were consecrated as priests and so made holy. But then if they came in contact with death or with something defiling, they could lose their holiness and then have to go through a process again to be made holy again. Is that the nature of the holiness of Jesus Christ? No. It's not just an external thing that's put on. He is holy. He is loyal. He is faithful from the heart, from the inside out, down in the depths of his being. He is God's holy one. It's so much is a part of who he is that Psalm 16 and Acts 2 can even talk about his corpse being holy. Even his dead body is yet holy. It's so much a part of who he is. That is so far superior to the Old Testament priests. So far superior. He's holy. He's fiercely loyal, devout, godly, right down to the depths of his being forever God's holy one. Now the next word in Hebrews 7.26 is that word harmless. Harmless. Some translations opt for the word innocent here, but really the word harmless is the perfect translation of this word. At the root of the word is a word for evil, evil in the sense of injuring someone. So, for instance, when the New Testament Gospels talk about the malefactors, a malefactor, that uses this word, the opposite of this word. So, a malefactor is someone who has caused injury. He's an evildoer who has caused injury or harm to someone else. And therefore, the thieves on either side of Jesus and the cross were malefactors, and they were being punished for it. So, this is the word for doing harm, doing injury, and then it's negated harmless harmless Jesus Christ is absolutely incapable of doing wrong or injuring anyone who has been reconciled to him once you have been reconciled to him by his blood once you have been justified freely by his grace he is for you and never against you. As the writer of Hebrews said earlier in his exposition, he is full of sympathy and compassion even in our failures and in our sins and in our wanderings and rebellions. He's harmless. There's a striking example of the opposite of this in the Old Testament. You can think of priests who were very harmful, who injured people, quite literally, in fact. You maybe remember Eli's wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They were harmful high priests and caused all of Israel to despise the sacrifices because of what they were doing at the sanctuary. Harmful. Jesus is not that at all. He's the very opposite of Hophni and Phinehas. Harmless. And therefore, you can trust him. You can trust him no matter what. No matter what you've done. No matter what your past history is. No matter how long your backsliding's been. You can go to him and you can know that being reconciled to him by his blood, he is 
incapable of doing you wrong. He's therefore trustworthy. And you can be safe in his presence. Safe in the arms of Jesus. You can trust him. He's just the high priest you need. Holy, harmless, and our third word is undefiled. Undefiled. So unstained, free from debasement. Remember James chapter 1, the end of James 1. Pure religion and undefiled is this. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Undefiled. Unspotted. Jesus was completely unspotted by this world. He lived in the same fallen planet that you and I live in. It was surrounded by the same fallen people that you and I are surrounded with. And yet the contagion of this world never stained him. He did no evil. He did not even contract any evil. Even though evil was thick in the atmosphere that he breathed, he would not and could not be defiled by it. He moves in that same evil atmosphere as you and I do. He touches lepers. He eats with publicans and sinners. The notoriously sinful woman of the street washes his feet with her hair. And all the while, he's undefiled and does not pick up the contagion of the world anywhere. Nothing leaves the slightest stain on his mind or on his spirit or on his imagination or on his emotions or on his ambitions or on his heart. He's absolutely undefiled. Think about how impossible that is for you and I. We can't even imagine such a thing. What would it be like to attend a sporting event and not be defiled? Or to live in a dormitory and not be defiled. Or even drive to work in the morning and nothing leave a stain on you. To be completely undefiled. We can't even leave, live 10 minutes without being defiled in this world. But the Lord Jesus, there's not one sordid thing that blemished him at all. He is undefiled. It's amazing. This is just the high priest we need. For we are the exact opposite. Even in our regenerated condition, we are so full of unfaithfulness to him. And we are so defiled by all the evil that is upon, that is in this fallen world. And we are constantly failing him. And constantly disappointed with ourselves. And what we need is a man at God's right hand who was tempted at all points like as we are, yet without sin. And who therefore can, can represent the defiled and deficient and unfaithful likes of us before a holy God. He's holy and harmless and undefiled, impeccably sinless. Just the high priest that we need. But the text goes on. Hebrews 7, 26. 
Now there are two phrases which round out verse 26. Separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens. Now normally we think of separate from sinners being attached to the first three. Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Kind of sounds like it goes together as if he's not, he's not like a sinner. He's separate from sinners. And it is true that Jesus is not like a sinner. He's separate from sinners in that sense. But I would bracket these two together, separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens, as communicating the realm in which he ministers. He's not here. He's there. Separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens. And so here's the second quality that we need in our high priest. We need a high priest who is exalted to another realm. We need a high priest who's not here, but there. A priest is a mediator. And that's what we need. We need a mediator between us and God. Because of our sin, because of our continuing unfaithfulness, we need a mediator. Like a bridge, which has a foundation on both sides of the river. God and man. A God-man. We need a mediator. But this mediator is not going to be like human mediators. We have arbitrators, we have mediators in our experience, but what they're doing is going back and forth between the two parties trying to work out a compromise. So he hears from us about what our goals are, goes to the other party, finds out what their goals are, tries to work out a deal. That's not what this mediator's doing. Because God is 100% in the right and I am 100% in the wrong. I don't need a mediator who's going to try to strike a deal with God. What I need is a mediator to, as Hebrews said in chapter 5, offer gifts and sacrifices. I need a mediator to propitiate God, to satisfy him. I need, so therefore, I don't need a mediator here. I need a mediator there in the presence of God. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ is. In fact, the end of chapter 6 of Hebrews talked about how we have an anchor that is sure and steadfast. It's within the veil, behind the veil, in the very presence of God, the most holy place. He is the forerunner there. And that's what I need. I need my anchor lodged there. It would be a tragedy if my anchor were here and it were up to me to somehow swing it up there and hope it gets caught on something. I would never be able to do that. So the image is the anchor is already there and it's lodged immovably there because that's where my high priest is exalted and seated. The anchor is there and it's mine to hold on to the anchor. And my anchor holds. It holds. And oh, for a tighter grip on that anchor. Because it's a sure and a steadfast anchor. It's not going anywhere. Because Jesus Christ, my high priest, is exalted to the right hand of God. Forever God's and my priest. A mediator between us. 
So he is impeccably sinless. And he is exalted to another realm. And look at how the writer talks about that realm. Higher than the heavens. He's not just an angel up there. Higher than the heavens. Exalted above the heavens. Such exquisite language for the exaltation and the glory of our risen Lord Jesus. Our priest who's there and not here. Praise God. Now third, verse 27. Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. So what verse 27 is communicating is we need the kind of high priest who doesn't have to offer daily sacrifices. He is without necessity of offering daily repeated sacrifices. When we think about our Lord Jesus exalted to the right hand of God, ever living to be our high priest, should we be thinking about him as making continual offerings in that place because of our continual sinning? No. He does not need to make daily sacrifices. His sacrifice was done once. And that is one of the great underlying foundational truths of this entire six-chapter sec- six section of Hebrews, that his offering was one time. And the argument is going to be that repeated sacrifices betray that it's not working. If you keep doing it, it's not accomplishing anything. What are you saying when, if you're an artist and you keep putting brush strokes on your painting? What are you saying if you're a writer and you keep adding words to your book? It's not complete. It's not finished. There's still something that can be perfected by this. The repeated nature of sacrifices shows they're not working. But if it's done once, that means it is sufficient. It is sufficient. And so there's two reasons why he's not without, why he, why he is without necessity of offering daily sacrifices. He doesn't need to offer daily sacrifices for two reasons in verse 27. The first is he doesn't have any of his own sins. The priests of the old covenant were sinners themselves. And so, so much of their ministry was, okay, first you have to offer for your sins and the sins of your family, and then you offer for the people. That's how the Day of Atonement worked. And so, the first reason why he doesn't need to offer daily sacrifices is what we've already said. He's impeccably sinless. The other reason he doesn't have to offer daily sacrifices is because of the perfection and sufficiency of his sacrifice. And you can see it all summed up at the end of verse 27 with one word. What is the one word at the end of verse 27 which summarizes the perfection of this sacrifice? It's the word himself himself this he did once when he offered up himself and because it was himself and all that he is as 
God's eternal son made flesh. All that he is in fulfillment of prophecy. All that he is in a perfect, obedient son. Who fulfilled the law in every respect. All that he is as a willing, voluntary sacrifice who lays down his life for his friends. All that he is summed up in this word himself means that this work is finished. It is completed. It is sufficient and never has to be repeated because it is a sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9 at the end is going to say that he appeared once in the end of the world to put away sin. To put it away. The same word used by the Old Testament prophets to speak about divorce. Put it away. The same word used by the Old Testament when talking about what you should do with idols. Put them away. That's what Christ has done. He's abolished it. He's annulled it. He's taken it away. He's appeared once to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so he doesn't need to offer daily sacrifices. That's the third quality. Okay, so the first was that he's impeccably sinless. And oh, how we need a high priest like that. And second, we need a high priest who's not here but there in the presence of God for us. And third, we need a high priest who does not have to offer daily sacrifices because of how sinless he is himself and because of how sufficient his offering was. And then here's the fourth in verse 28. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore. Now that whole verse is about how Jesus Christ was made a priest. How did he come into this office? Well, it has already been established by the writer of Hebrews that men do not take this office upon themselves. You can't make yourself a high priest. You have to be ordained to that office by God. That's what Hebrews chapter 5 said. It said in verse number 1, probably it's a page back, for every high priest taken from among men is ordained. And later on in verse number 4, it says, no man taketh this honor unto himself. You can't make yourself a priest. You can't make yourself a meteor. That's ridiculous. It'd be just as ridiculous as you and I deciding that we are going to be the mediators for the president of the United States. And if we set up a tent on Pennsylvania Avenue outside the White House, And we said, anybody who's going to see the president has to come through me for approval. And we took that upon ourselves. And so we went up there, set up our little booth, put up our sign. That would be absolutely ridiculous to make yourself a mediator. You must be appointed or ordained to that office. Okay, so so this verse is, is getting at that truth. He had to be ordained. So how was he ordained to this office? And the verse says that he wasn't ordained the old way. The old way, think about how a priest became a priest in the old covenant. They became a priest by 
genealogy, by bloodline, by lineage. They're just born into it. There was no such thing as a little boy in, in, the, uh, in, the, in Israel going to his parents one day and saying, the Lord has been working into my, in my heart and I think I'm being called to the priesthood. No such thing. If you're in the family, you are. If you're not in the family, you're not. And that's how you get priests like Hophni and Phinehas who didn't know God because they're just born into it. So the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 7 that the old way was by the law of a carnal commandment. But this priest was made a priest by an, the word of the oath. Look at what it says in the middle of 28. But the word of the oath, which was since or after the law, maketh the son a high priest. What's he talking about there? What's he talking about? What's this oath that he's talking about by the which Jesus was made and ordained a priest? He's talking about the psalm that we sang at the beginning of our service, Psalm 110. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here's the fourth quality then. The fourth quality of our high priest is he must be appointed by the authority of God. And this high priest is appointed by the authority of God. He's appointed not by the law of a carnal commandment, not just genealogy. He's, he's appointed by the oath of God. The Lord hath sworn. Now think about what Hebrews already said about God swearing. Hebrews chapter 6 said something about that. God swears by his own name so that there can be a double assurance of the thing being true. Now, if God says it, it's true because he's a faithful, immutable God. He is true. But if something, if he wants to give a double assurance, he'll say it and then he will swear so that by Two immutable things in the which God cannot lie, we can have a sure hope, a sure assurance. And so here's one of those things that he doesn't just say, but he swears. He By an oath, he says, this is the high priest. And not only does he swear, then he says, the Lord has sworn and will not repent. He's not going to change his mind about this. He's not going to change his mind. There's one mediator between God and men. There's one high priest. He's sworn it, and he's not going to change his mind about it. Thou art a priest for how long? Forever. This is the only way forever of being reconciled to God. So this is our standing, and this is our rock. And this is the hope that we must ever cling to. This is the ballast in the bottom of our boat when we are tossed to and fro in the sea. This is the rock that we must cling to for refuge in the time of storm. That Jesus Christ is forever God's priest. Ordained anointed, appointed by his authority to represent me. And one day, 
One day I will stand before God with nothing but Jesus Christ. And it will be well with my soul. Because he is an absolutely, perfectly sufficient high priest. He's never going to change his mind. He's a priest forever. That's just the high priest I need. And all of the uncertainty and change of this life. There is something sure and something steadfast that rises above all my circumstances and all of my emotions. And it is that there is a man at God's right hand who was ordained by God Almighty to be a priest representing the likes of me. And he is impeccably sinless. And he appears at God's right hand to represent and intercede for me. And he does not have to offer daily sacrifices because he's so sinless and because his offering was so sufficient. And so this is, last phrase of verse 28, a priest who is consecrated, or look at the marginal note there if you have marginal notes in your edition, who is perfected forevermore. He's just the high priest we need, perfectly fitted for sinners like us. Is Jesus Christ your high priest? Is he yours? And are you his? Have you cast yourself on his blood and his righteousness on him alone so that you can with sincerity say that on Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand and for those of you who know the Lord Jesus and have a well grounded assurance that he's your high priest oh how we ought to draw near to him is there, in, in light of this truth of who he is, is there any reason that we should shrink back to tell him everything? Is there any reason why we should not pour out our hearts before him? Is there any reason why we should be distrustful of him? Is there any reason why we should not pursue deeper fellowship with him? He's just the high priest we need holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens, who doesn't need to make his daily offering for sins, and who is appointed by the authority of God, Jesus Christ, just the high priest we need. Let us pray. Eternal God and our Father in heaven, how we praise thee for this grace. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary.
how we thank thee for our great high priest and that he is perfectly fitted for us. So give us hearts, O God, that draw near to him with full assurance of faith, with boldness and confidence and liberty. Forgive us, O God, for living at a distance from thee. And may we each claim the promise, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to thee. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.